You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you are here. To those tuning in online, glad you have uh, tuned in. To you who are in the room, this is interesting. This morning, I've experienced congregational creep. First, first service, everybody was in the back. Nobody was in front. Now, y'all are kind of, I feel like I'm being surrounded. So, um, But that's okay. It's a good thing. Uh, I'm Dan Nelson. If you're expecting Keith Miller to be here, he is still on vacation. He will be, however, back in the office tomorrow, and he'll be back to speak with us next week. So hang on only one more time uh, with me here today. I uh, got a couple brief announcements for you. One, uh, the women's Bible study is restarting. It's been on hiatus for a while. So if you want to come on Wednesday mornings at 9.30, you're welcome to do that. It will meet here in the building. I'm not sure exactly where, but I know they're going to meet out in the uh, lobby area, cafe area to get started. So if you're interested in that, ladies. Second announcement is on Sunday, uh, August 30th, is our annual business meeting, the partnership meeting. Uh, it's going to be 6 o'clock here on that Sunday. It's where we look back and celebrate some of the ministry that's gone on the past year and look forward to what's coming in the next year. Anybody's welcome, so I'd invite you to come. Even if you're not an official partner at Meadowbrook, come and check it out and just see what's going on at Meadowbrook and um, find out more of who we are. Uh, Everybody's welcome. Only partners can vote. So uh, Saturday, or excuse me, Sunday, August 30th, 6 o'clock. And last thing, if you do choose to give, we appreciate that. Um, Colleen spoke about one of the missionaries we financially support. We support a variety of missionaries from Cheyenne to literally all around the world. And so when you give on, well, whatever day you happen to give, part of your giving goes there. So if you want to give today, there's a box by the door when you go out. Uh, Or anytime you can go online to our website, meadowbrook.org. Upper right, there's a, a Give tab. Click there, and the instructions are there how to do that online, and we appreciate that. So let's take a moment and pray again, and then we'll jump into it. Lord God, um, we come to you as a mixed bag of people this morning. Some of us, maybe, eh, I don't want to be here, but I have to. Somebody drug me. And some are here because, man, they want to be, and they want to hear what you have to say today, and we're all the way in between, and there's some challenges in our lives, and some distractions, and there's encouragement and good things. And so we're kind of, I guess, all over the map, Lord. But I pray that you would speak to us and that you would filter and translate my words into words we need to hear. Help us remember that it's not just about us here uh, in this building, but your people are literally all over the world worshiping you and listening uh, for teaching on you so they can follow you better. And so, God, I pray that all of our hearts and all of our minds would be open to what you have to say to us from wherever we dive into Scripture, but that you would speak and that you would change us and that you would draw us to you and then you would send us out as your lights in this world. Thank you for your spirit. And again, we ask that you would speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at a, a book of the New Testament that is probably one of the most familiar, uh, most famous, because of two verses in particular. 
Uh, I confess right up front as we start, there is so much here that we're not going to cover it all. And so we may kind of glance over something that you think, ah, why didn't he go there? That's huge. And I know it is, but there's just so much hugeness <laughs> in this passage that we can't cover it all. But hopefully we're going to grab onto some important things and drill down on, on those and then bring them back from you know, the first century back to the 20th, 21st century <laughs> uh, and apply them. Uh, probably the most famous verse in the world is found in this chapter. People know it who have nothing to do with the church, who reject the church, and they'll throw it back in their face, in our face. But it's that 316, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And so we kind of all know that. Anybody here probably, I, won't, I don't know, not heard that. I'm sure you have. It also contains a verse that we evangelicals like to hold on to and we, we refer to a lot. Sometimes we use it as a club. But it's that verse that says you must be born again. And so we're going to look at those. This morning, if you haven't yet, I invite you to open your Bible or take out your app and look. Start in John 2, verse 23. Uh, we're starting there because we usually tend to start in verse 1, but there's a flow here, and these couple verses in front give us a sense of what's going on and what leads up to this passage. Uh, all the Gospels are biographies of Jesus' life, but there are some significant differences, and one of those is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. That comes from two Greek words that means to see together, and the reason then they're called that is because if you lay them out side by side, you'll see the same stories in the same order with the same people, I mean, just right down the line. 60% of those three Gospels are in all three of those Gospels, and so they're very, very similar. John, however, is different. There are things not in John that are in the synoptics, and there are things that are not in the synoptics, but we find them in John. And so if you look in John, you're not going to find the temptation in the wilderness. You're not going to find the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, you're not going to find the transfiguration of Jesus. There is no mention of casting out demons in John. And many of the parables that we read in the other uh, Gospels are not there. And at the same time, in John, we find a variety of items, particularly this morning, Everything about Nicodemus and the born again, this is the only place in the Gospels we find this because John is aimed at some different people than the synoptics are, and, and that's good. He's aimed at kind of the, the, the Greek uh, educated folks, and so he speaks to them in ways that they will hear best. And so John tells us at the end of verse 23 that uh, they're in Jerusalem. It's the Passover festival. And many people have seen the signs that Jesus is performing and they begin to believe in him. But John tells us Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And so we get that setting. Jerusalem, Passover, lots of people. The hotels are full, okay? People in the streets, everywhere. You can't get a reservation for three hours at the restaurant because everybody is there. And Jesus is gathering a reputation. People know who he is. They're hearing about and seeing what he's doing. And so he's gaining a following. They are believing in him. But, and that's a big but, okay? <laughs> what are you laughing at? Yeah. John says Jesus is not entrusting himself to people. So people are trusting Jesus, but Jesus doesn't trust them. That's what entrust means. If you go out, you know, you've got little kids and you go out on a date, you call up the babysitter and you say, we're going to entrust 
our children to you. Take care of them. They're valuable to us, and we trust that they will do that. Well, Jesus says, eh, I don't really trust you because I know what's in you. I can read you like an open book, and I know that eventually you are going to call for my crucifixion. And so he's got his hesitation there. And it says Jesus knew what was in each person. That tells us something important about Jesus and us. Because he says he knew what was in them. And so by extension, he knows what's in us. And so maybe that should give us pause. Because there is nothing about your thoughts or my thoughts or our actions and the motives behind them. There's nothing that Jesus know, doesn't know. Jesus knows me and you through and through. And that can kind of be scary because sometimes, you know, we, we know ourselves pretty well, right? And sometimes we don't like ourselves for what we think or for what we do and the motives and the, the, thin, the sin that's behind all of that. Sometimes if we weren't stuck with us, we would walk away from us. We wouldn't want to be our own friend. Sometimes we just want to give up on ourselves, and sometimes we do that. Sometimes I think we can hide from Jesus what we've done and what we think, right? We think, well, if I just do this or say that or something, Jesus won't know because we don't want to make him angry or, or we don't want to run him off or we don't want to disappoint him, but Jesus knows me and you through and through. And that really it's a good thing because flip that around and say, even though Jesus knows all of the crap in your life and in my life and in all of our lives, even though he knows every detail of that, way, way back before you or I were even a glimmer in our great, 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 great grandparents' eyes, Jesus said, I choose to leave behind all my kingliness and I choose to come to earth and to die for you and that if, if that isn't uber good news I don't know what is and so it's a good thing that Jesus knows me and you through and through and John tells us in verse 1 of chapter 3, there is a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That tells us a lot about Nick's background. Because Nick was a Pharisee. That was the strictest group of people in Judaism. They were the religious elite. They were followers of the capital L law. They were the epitome of legalistic. If you read the New Testament, practically anywhere that there's a mention of the Pharisees, you look and you see that legalism that was behind everything they did. They had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They knew it by heart. If chapter and verse existed back then, they could quote you chapter and verse on anything you wanted to know about those books. They were the biblical PhDs of their time. And, and that's who Nick was. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. They were the 70-member supreme court, if you will, of the Jewish religion. They ruled on all things Jewish. They decided if commentaries were in line with the scripture or not, what the rabbis taught, was that good or bad? They, they looked at people and how they lived, and was that in line with, with Judaism? One of their duties was to examine people who were suspected of being false prophets. And we see them exercising that later in the Gospels 
when they get into it with Jesus even more. Nick is a member of the Sanhedrin, so he's got all his dots, I's dotted and T's crossed when it comes to Judaism. And in verse 2 and 3, John tells us, Nick came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And so that Jesus came to him by night, uh, is that important? And perhaps it is. Um, you know, one reason he might have come to him at night is he didn't want anybody to see, right? He's being sneaky because Nick is part of the opposition to Jesus. It's still forming, but it's there, and they don't agree with what he's doing. And so he doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming to talk to Nicodemus, the enemy. It would be kind of like, you know, uh, Donald Trump paying a visit to Joe Biden some evening next week. I mean, if somebody saw that, they'd be like, yeah, what's going on there? And so he's being sneaky. Maybe, maybe, though, he went to Jesus at night because he thought, I can have uninterrupted time with Jesus. Because during the day, people are just on Jesus and around Jesus all day long because they all want something from him. And so uh, Nick thinks, I, I want to have an extended conversation. I got some questions here. I can't get at him during the day. I'm going to go at night after supper because people will be gone and I'll have my chance. John also uses a literary device here. If you read through his gospel, he talks about a lot about light and darkness and about how you know, the light is good and it represents God and darkness is bad and it doesn't represent God. And, and so maybe what John is saying here is that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in the midst of his own spiritual darkness. He's got questions. He doesn't get this spirituality that Jesus is bringing. And so he wants to find out, but he doesn't know spiritual darkness. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we, we, Pharisees, right? We know that you're a teacher who has come from God because no one could do this unless they came from God. And we get it. And, and at least in the privacy of their own meeting room, they admitted this, this Jesus guy, he's got to be from God couldn't do these things without him, and we know they still resisted, but that he comes from God. And then Jesus interrupts Nicodemus, I think. And he gives this response. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I think Nicodemus is thinking, wait, where's that coming from? I didn't ask any questions. I'm just making my own statement. I've got questions. Oh boy, do I have questions, Jesus. But I haven't got there yet. Why are you saying this? This doesn't make sense. And when you look at Jesus' words, he says, very truly, if you look in the Greek, because we are all Greek scholars here, it says, truly, truly. Emphasis, right? On the written page, capital letters, in bold, underlined, maybe a larger font, because it's important that you catch this point, Nick. When I was a kid and I'd get in trouble, it wasn't often, but when I did, my mom, uh, if she's the one who, who disciplined me, as we were winding things down uh, and, and I'd wipe the tears out of my eyes, at the end she would always come down to me and she would take my face in her hands and she would always ask me, Dan, and eye to eye, right? And not in sympathy, hard, Dan, are you listening? Dan, do you understand? Dan, do you hear me? 
face to face. And that's kind of the image I get here. I don't think literally that's what happened. But that's the idea that Jesus is speaking to him. And he takes, figuratively speaking, he takes Nick's face in his hands and he says, no one, you've got to get this, Nick, nobody, nobody can enter the kingdom unless they're born again. Jesus doesn't say to Nick, hey, you've got it, good job, when he says, you know, hey, we recognize and high five and, you know, way to go, guys. And he doesn't say, oh, yeah, you, you better get it and you're in trouble if you don't shape up. He says, the truth is, Nick, you've got to get this. Nobody will see the kingdom of God without being born again. And, and this raises at least one huge question, doesn't it? What does it mean to be born again? Because we talk about that a lot. But what does that really mean? Nick doesn't know. And so he asks, verse 4, he says, How can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they don't like enter into their mother's womb to be born, do they? And I have no doubt that being the good evangelicals we are, when we hear Nick say, you know, what does that mean? We kind of go, come on, Nick. Or we go, come on, Nick. Everybody knows what born again means, right? I mean, born again means to accept Jesus Christ into your heart, that he's your own personal Lord and Savior. Everybody knows that. Right? Don't we all know that? But apparently Nick is not a good evangelical because he still says, I don't get it. Jesus, you've got to explain this to me. And perhaps that's why Nick uses a play on words here. Because what we read as, you know, you must be born again, because we're all Greek scholars, I'm sure we know this, but just to remind us that that could also be translated born from above. And there's a big difference between those two, isn't there? Born again, just do something over that we've already done before, and that's where Nick is. That's what he thinks it is. But Jesus is saying, no, you've you got to be born from above. And that's a whole different source. That's a whole different starting point. That's a whole different destination. When Nick says, what do you mean you've got to crawl back into your mother's womb? Pharisee, Nick should have got at him. But, but as a religious leader, as a Pharisee, Nick should have gotten this. Because even in Judaism, there's, there's talk, the rabbis taught that when somebody became a convert to Judaism, that they underwent a dramatic, radical conversion out of their Gentile life and into Judaism. And that transformation or that conversion was so radical that that man could marry his mother because he is a whole new man. So Nick should have got that, because he knew his Jewish roots. And as an intellectual, Nick should have got it, because all around them, people practiced the mystery religions. And part of the mystery religion said, your goal was to unite yourself with this mysterious God out there. And when you did that, you became born anew again. All right? It's a new you. And so you should have gotten that, Nick. But Nick didn't. And so Jesus, once again, in verse 5, takes Nick's face in his hands. He says, Nick, very truly, you got to get this, Nick. you got to understand. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised. 
when I say you must be born again from above. There's a lot of debate what exactly Jesus meant when he said of water and the Spirit. And I'll let you look in the commentaries if you want to. I'm not going to go there because nobody really agrees. But what commentators and scholars do agree on is that flesh begets flesh. And spirit begets spirit. Consider your source, Jesus says. If you plant an acorn, you get an oak tree, not raspberries, right? Like begets like. And so Jesus is saying this is not a crawl back in your mother's womb kind of born again. It's a, it's a born from above spiritual thing. And maybe Nick had a hard time with that because he was Jewish. And most, Jewish, Jew, most Jews had this perspective that we are the chosen people. And that's what God said, right? I chose you out of everybody to be my people. And so I'm in. The only birth I need is to be born into my Jewish heritage. What more do you need? The Jews thought, I'm in, so I don't need to jump through a born-again hoop and be born again, because I'm born right the first time. But take a look at Matthew 9, 3, 9, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9. John is out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing, and some Pharisees come up, and they're grumbling and talking about what he's doing. And, And he says to them, Do not think and say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So it's not about your genetic blood lineage that makes you a child of Abraham. There's something else going on, and we see that in Romans chapter 2 especially. Paul, I think, really lays it out He says, a man or a woman is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Spiritual, earthly. And Nick is still shaking his head because he thinks, wait, wait, my resume is pristine. My education is impeccable. I am descended from Abraham. Here's, I mean, at that time, some of the rabbis taught Abraham stood by the gates of hell to make sure no Jews even accidentally wandered in there because they had no place there. They were God's chosen people. And Nick is saying, I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. I have been banking and investing my entire life in my faith, in my Phariseeism, in my Sanhedrinism. And now, Jesus, you're telling me that's not it? And Jesus is saying, that's right. That's not it. It's not enough. You must be born again. And that's something we say, don't we, as 
being good evangelicals, we say that to people who we think are far from God and we, we want them to come to God. And so we say, here's what's got to happen. You've got to be born again. We want you to be saved. And so we, you know, we want to say it to the thief on the cross that Jesus was with. And we want to say it to the, to the prostitutes or the tax collectors in the Old, Temest, Old Testament. And, and we bring it forward today and we want to say it to our friends who are far from God and, and maybe they drink too much or sleep around or whatever it is, but we know they don't love Jesus like we do. And so we say, you need to be born again and we want you to accept Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. But notice something here. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Nicodemus, a righteous dude, Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, not some decadent, sin-sick, crazy uh, opposition, can't even say the right word, but who opposes Jesus, Jesus' enemy. He's saying someone who everyone would say, this is a good man. He is upright. He is moral. He is religious. He goes to church every week. He knows his Bible better than 95 plus percent of the people around, and he'll crush you. He'll own you if you want to have Bible trivia with you. He prays multiple times a day, not just for a few minutes when he has his quiet time. But Jesus says that's not it. That's not what gets you into the kingdom. Because if that was it, Nick would be in. But Jesus says, you're not. I have a friend who... uh, and this has been some years, and he, would, he, he tells this story, but he says, you know, I used to be a moral, upright, religious guy. I grew up in church. I did all the right things. I was never really a problem to my parents. I, I got a little older and went to college, and I said, you know, I need to go to seminary and be a pastor because I'm a, a religious guy, and I love God. And, and so he went to seminary, and he became ordained, and he became pastor at a church. And he says, one day it finally or suddenly hit me, I'm not born again. I'm trusting in my religiosity and in my biblical knowledge and in my good behavior that that's why God approves of me. But he realized one day that's not it. Do you realize that? Do I realize that? I I struggle with that sometimes because sometimes I'd rather rely on my own stuff. I don't know your story and so I can't speak Uh, to it too much, but I know my own story. And I've been a Jesus follower for just short of 40 years, and for most of the past 30 years, I've been a pastor in one way or another. And I've noticed, this is my observation, I'm not saying it's gospel, I'm just saying my observation is, that when I look at so many good people in good churches, I hear people who talk a lot, and, and you listen to them and you watch them and, and you know, they, they talk the right stuff and they go to their Bible studies and they have their quiet times and they live moral lives. But sometimes I wonder, where is their trust? Really? Because I struggle with this sometimes. Where is their trust? Really? Is it in my biblical knowledge and my good behavior and all of that stuff I do? Or is it trusting in somebody else? who says that's not really what it's about. Those aren't bad things, but if you want to be in the kingdom, there's someone different you've got to trust. 
But Jesus goes on, verse 8. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Two quick things here. One is that when, um, this is confusing sometimes, because Jesus and his disciples spoke Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek, (laughs) and now we're talking in English. And so there's some translation that goes on there. But when when, um, uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he uses the word we translated here as wind, it's also the same word that's translated spirit. And so there's another place that John kind of plays on words. It's a literary device. And Nick should have known, he's not talking necessarily about the wind that we have way too much of around here. He's talking about God's spirit. And you don't see his spirit, but you see what his spirit does. And you should notice that. And Nick should catch that. And there's also this parallel, again, a literary device between born from above and born of the spirit. He brings those together as if they're the same. But Nick, poor Nick, he still doesn't get it. And so Jesus is kind of getting tired of him. And in verse 10, Jesus said, You are Israel's teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? (laughs) Nick, right? Third time in this short passage. Bold, all caps, underlined, bigger font. You got to see this. Nick, you got to catch this. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't get it. You don't believe. How then will you believe when I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. And here's the the quick theological thing. Whenever you see written Son of Man and Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, that's an equivalent to saying, I am God. All right, important thing. And John uses it a lot. That's who's gone into heaven because he's come from heaven. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him... Ah, we're getting somewhere. What's this born again? That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Old Testament for you. Numbers 21. Is, is the bulk of the story, but the Israelites are out in the desert. Uh, Moses is with them, and they're tired. They're getting crabby. They're getting disobedient. They're complaining, whining, speaking against God, speaking against Moses, and God says, I'm tired of this. And so God sent these poisonous snakes into the camp, and they started biting people, and people would die. Well, it took them a little while, but finally the Jews figured out what's going on. They went to Moses and said, Moses, we get it. We repent. We're sorry. Please go to God and tell him to, to stop these snakes take them away and so God says okay I will but Moses here's what you have to do you have to go and take bronze and pour a a a bronze serpent and then you've got to put it on the top of a post or a pole and then you've got to raise it up and then whoever looks at that will live remind you of anything else you've heard In the Bible, New Testament, Gospels, Jesus. Yeah. And whoever looks at that snake, that bronze servant will be saved. And so we ask ourselves, why this emphatic truly, truly? Why is 
Jesus take Nick's face in his hands so many times that, about this necessity of being born again, and I think that is explained in verse 16. The famous verse, God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him is not going to perish but have eternal life. I think in a nutshell, Jesus is pounding home this point that God loves us and he wants us, everybody, to be in the kingdom. That's his desire. And this had to be a shocker to Nick again because he thought, you know, Jesus or God only loves the Jews, not those Gentiles. God only loves this one small ethnic religious group, and he just tolerates everybody else. He sent Jesus to save us, not them. But that's not quite the case. It was literally beyond the comprehension of the Jews to think that. Here it comes. Next slide. <laughs> Gentile lives matter. They, they, they couldn't grasp that. Because God only loves the Jews. But if you think about your biblical history, you realize Gentile lives matter. Because remember the story of Jonah? We kind of think it's about a whale, but it's not. That's just a little bit. What it's really about is God calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were not Jewish. They were evil, terrible, wicked, violent sinners as much as you could get. And God loved them. And so he sent Jonah to call them to repentance. Gentile lives matter. And Paul, his whole mission was to the Gentiles. In fact, one time he's in front of a huge crowd of Gentiles, and they're mad at him for what he's doing. But he talks to them, and he, he gives them their, the history of their, their people, and they begin to, to chill out a little bit. And they begin to give him an amen every once in a while even, until he comes to the point where he says, and God has given me this message to take to the Gentiles too. And all of a sudden, there's a riot. Because no, God doesn't care about the Gentiles. He only cares about the Jews. And if you remember the, the story of Peter praying in the New Testament, and he goes to Cornelius' house, who's a Gentile, and he eats with him, which is like, wow, unforgivable. And they get saved. They begin to follow Jesus. And the, the, the bigwigs up in Jerusalem hear about this and they say, Peter, come back to headquarters and justify what you've done. And Peter goes back to headquarters and he justifies what he's done. And you read this story in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and um, they say, yes, God is saving the Gentiles. This is awesome. But then in verse 19 of chapter 11, the Jewish believers continue to go out speaking the message to no one but the Jews, because they struggled so hard to believe that God cares about us all, not just the Jews. And so bring that forward to the 21st century and to realize when we start looking around, we say, Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate God's love for everybody, including people who are not like us, right? Us white, Anglo-Saxon, middle-class Baptists. Because don't we kind of have that idea that, yeah, good Christians are pretty much just like us. But it says Jesus died for people who have black skin 
and brown skin and, and yellow skin, not just white. And it says Jesus loved us so much that he, he died for those people who live on the other side of the world and they sing weird songs to weird instruments in buildings with a design we would never put in our neighborhood, in languages we don't get, with hairstyles we don't like, and clothes we would never put on. But Jesus loves them. And he died for them. He's south of a border, but that shows that he loves those people who not only live south of a border, but they may want to come across the border. And you know those Canadians to the north... <laughs> Hey, I have family, Canadian family. I know how they are. Jesus loves them. And he died for the people, I'm getting my directions wrong, but across the oceans too, all the way around, because he loves them. Jesus' death shows how much God loves the people who would put black there, or blue, or all, or none. He died for them. And he died for those Antifa people. And he died for those Republicans and those Democrats and those liberals and conservatives and those independents and those libertarians and whatever category you want to classify people. He, wow, he died for the rioters and the protesters and the police. And he didn't die. And you know, he died for that obnoxious neighbor of yours who's got the dog that won't shut up. And he died for you. Because maybe you're the one with the dog who won't shut up. But do you get the point? Jesus died so that we could all get into the kingdom, not just the Jews. Because he loves every sinner in the world. And he wants every sinner to have the opportunity, at least, to get into the kingdom. In verse 17, God sent Jesus to save the world, not condemn it. Again, here's my observation over years of ministry, but I think sometimes we evangelicals get stuck on the wrath of God. And, and God has wrath. That's one of his attributes. There's no question there. I think sometimes, though, we get so stuck on it, we think God is sitting on his throne in heaven just trembling because he is so angry and so fed up with all the sinners in the world, and he is just fuming and just anxious for that moment at the end of the age when he can swoosh however many people off the earth and say, you go to hell, because then he'll be done with them. And I think we kind of have this idea that Jesus jumps in there and says, wait a minute, Dad, wait a minute, just take a breath. I can help you with this, Dad. If you send me down there, I will take the punishment for all those people. And I will carry the weight of sin, the world's sin on my back, and you can forgive them. And that way, you can relax and not be so angry and not send so many people to hell. And again, I get the idea of God's wrath, and I get His holiness and His justice and the need for Jesus to come. I get that, and I am not in any way pushing that aside but what does Jesus say here? He says God loves the world, not hates it, not tolerates it, not puts up with it, but he loves the world. And because he loves 
us in the midst of our sin. He sent Jesus so that we could be forgiven and get into the kingdom. He doesn't want to send people to hell. He wants people to be in the kingdom. Again, verse 16 and 17, for God so loved the world. Read 1 Timothy 2.4. God's explicit, God's desire is for everyone to be saved. That's what he wants. To see, the thing is, we hear people who say, well, I'm not going to believe in or follow or worship some kind of God that sends people to hell. It's like, great, neither do I. That's not what my God does. We're already on our way there anyway. That's, our, that's on us, not on God. God loves us, and he sees that, and he says, I don't want that, so I'm going to send Jesus so you don't have to. Whole different perspective, isn't it? We need saving And because he loves us, Jesus came. The Pharisees did better than anybody living the upright moral life and following all the rules. And Jesus said, that's not it. It's good to follow the rules. It's good to be morally upright. That's good. But but that doesn't get us into the kingdom. Being born again is not being in a worship service and being called to the altar where you, on the second verse of just as I am, as you're weeping, you go to the front of the auditorium and you fall on your knees and you say, Jesus, come into my heart and be my personal Lord and Savior. That's good to do, but that's not in the Bible. I don't see any command to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I'm not casting it aside, but that's about repentance. That's really not born again because... Asking Jesus to come into our hearts is something we do. But being born again, that's something Jesus does. And that's where our trust has got to be. Not that I said a prayer, but what Jesus did. Where are you with all of that? Where's your, where's your trust and your belief? What are, you, what are you looking up at, so to speak? You know, Jesus says, I'm up on the cross. That's where we need to look. That's where we need to trust. But are we? Because sometimes I don't. And I would bet there sometimes you don't. And maybe you never have. And so there's the challenge too, right? To look to Jesus. Not your goodness or your badness. That's not the point. The point is what Jesus has done. And being born again is a spiritual thing because of what Jesus has done. And so if you've done that, sweet. Keep doing that. It's not a one and done. It's all our lives looking up to Jesus. If you haven't, eh, maybe you've got to think about it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your Son and for the salvation that comes only in Him. Help us understand what that means both as people who do follow you and as people who perhaps don't. That our trust would be holy in you, not in us, and that we'd encourage and strengthen one another to follow you better so that as we are born again, we would let that shine and people would see it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.